as you guys are grabbing a seat, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, want to um, uh, just say a couple of things real quick. One, be praying for Sandy Pollard. She went back into the hospital again, this time with double pneumonia. Um, they are still not entirely sure, at least of my last hearing, of exactly what appears to be the underlying cause of all of these things. It appears that she's been walking around with pneumonia for the better part of a year, uh, but she's also had many kidney issues, and so uh, we need the Lord to provide for our sister, um, and so be praying, be praying for her. Uh, a couple quick things I want to follow up with from some of the announcements that Taylor made on the video earlier. One, if you're considering the discovery class, uh, just, to, just to, to ease some of you who may be new, taking the discovery class does not mean that you've signed your name in blood. Um, there's a couple steps to becoming a member here. The first step is to take the, is to take the discovery class, but then you can make a decision after that uh, whether you want to meet with the elders, share your profession of faith, and, so, and, and commit to this being the place, the family of God, and the visible community here in Carrollton that you want to participate with uh, and, and commit yourself to. And so, uh, but just wanted to ease some of you who may be feeling that fear. Like, if I sign up for this thing, will, they, will I never be able to get rid of them? Um, so um, the answer is yes and no, but... Um, you don't have to become a member if you take that class. Second, uh, please do sign up for the Theological Conference. I'm very excited about this event. It's coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, we, we need to grow theologically as a church. Uh, you, you, it's hard to see necessarily in the video last Sunday, but it's, I believe it's posted on, on Facebook as well. Uh, but I would strongly encourage you to come and be a part of that to shape your understanding. You can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. That there is a reason why God gave us why two-thirds of your Bible is in the Old Covenant. And that we don't simply drop it as soon as Jesus comes. In fact, we can't understand why Jesus has come unless we have the Old Testament. And so we, we need the Old Testament very dearly. And so uh, come and please learn uh, about the covenants from a, an overview of, of the greatness of the Old Testament and how the New Testament fulfills it so brilliantly and beautifully. All right, Matthew chapter 13, as we continue our look at the, uh, the parables of Jesus, parables meant to agitate, to get under your skin, to make you think, and to consider and to evaluate. And we've been looking at the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13 and various parables that, that Jesus has been talking about, the kingdom of God and describing it. He he's keeps going, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like... And we have one more of those this morning. Here's what, it is. Here's what it says. Two parables, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is explaining to us the nature of the kingdom. And he has been telling us about the kingdom. Who hears the gospel of the kingdom? Those who have the soil or the heart to hear. What is the reality of the kingdom in this world until God comes back 
is that there's going to be a reality of the kingdom is it's going to be surrounded by an evil kingdom, that there's going to be a competing kingdom. We also saw last week, we saw that this kingdom comes small and hidden, but it packs a powerful punch, even though it is surrounded by an evil world. It is a guaranteed for victory. And so finally we come to these last two parables. And it gives us two, two metaphors in these two parables. The first he gives us is the story of a man who found buried treasure. Found, found buried treasure. Now you might think like that's a kind of odd thing. Or you might think, oh man, I wish that was me. I, I find kind of uh, treasure, treasure hunting rather nerdy. You see, as a kid, I grew up near the beach, uh, beachside uh, community, and was at the beach quite often. And, and one of the things I remember seeing it often as a kid was one of those guys with headphones on his head, usually way too much sunscreen and an oversized hat, and some metal thing doing this. Looks like he was weed-eating the beach itself. And all, me and all my friends usually looked at those people and it's like, what nerds? Who goes to the beach to walk around with a weed whacker? trying to hear things underneath the ground. Recently, I read about a guy, though, named Terry Hebert, a guy in Great Britain, who, in using his metal detector, uh, discovered $5 million worth of gold and silver objects in his backyards. I'm not laughing anymore. (laughs) Back then, they didn't really have banking systems. That's why there's somebody finding treasure in their backyards. They didn't have banking systems, and so the people would bury their, their family heirlooms or their wealth or their treasure, right? That's what they did in the ancient Near East. And so if you owned a piece of property, you wouldn't necessarily keep it in your house because if someone broke in, and it would be too easy to find and steal, and so they would bury it somewhere. But often this treasure would get lost, lost from memory because maybe a, an enemy invader comes into town and drives off the family, or perhaps the parents die off and they don't have children or every, things were never communicated, and therefore there was perhaps treasure to be found on various properties. One of the best evidences of this being a common practice was in the, the ancient scrolls of the Qumran, which we often call the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most significant um, historic findings of Old Testament scriptures and ancient and, and um, ancient writings. But when the scrolls of the Qumran, the scrolls of the Qumran were found, there was what one of the scholars called the Copper Scroll. It was literally made out of copper leaf. Now, that's pretty cool in and of itself, but what's even cooler is what they found on the copper leaf scroll. Engraved on the scroll was a list that detailed all the hiding places of different lots of gold, silver, and treasures where they were buried under this tree and in that field. Now, that would be a pretty cool thing to find. Literally, it's a a treasure map made of copper. So that's the first one. They found a great treasure in the fields. The second parable is about a merchant searching for valuable pearls, valuable pearls. Merchants back then, they would, guys, men would travel all around the world to try to find various uh, exorbitant and beautiful things from various uh, uh, ports and do sales and buy various objects and then bring them back home where they would sell them for a great profit. And here is somebody who is, he is known in the pearl worlds. It's what he's looking at. That's what he deals with. And pearls were believed... In this day and age, when this parable is given, many believe that pearls were simply dues from heaven. 
was due from heaven. They were so valuable. Now, we understand now that it's, we don't view pearls near as wealthy as important because we've learned how to artificially create them. We know how they're created. We have access to get to many more pearls within clams. But back then, you had to be able to dive down and get these things yourself and, with, and you're by your own breath. And so there was there are a few uh, a few. They were very uncommon to find a great pearl. And pearls back then were so valuable that, in fact, they often drove the economy of the time. In fact, there was one, and Cleopatra was known to have a pearl that in that day and age would have been worth about 25 million denarii, which is a denarii is a day's, a day's wage. Therefore, it was worth about, in our day and age, our equivalent in money, $4 billion dollars. It was pretty unlikely that any pearl or even a diamond or jewel today in our economy would be valued like that, but it was in those days. So even though actually historians have shown how even one particular Roman general, uh, historian Suetonius tells us about a Roman general, Vitellius, who financed an entire military campaign by selling just one of his mother's pearl earrings. I hope he let her know before he absconded with the pearl earring. He is here, this man is looking for fine pearls. And he already has, most likely, a great chest of magnificent pearls. He understands them. He has purchased others that he will sell. And, but what we find here is that he has chosen to sell off all the rest of his pearls in order to have this one pearl. Now, what's the point of these two parables? The point is simply this. Here it teaches, we are, Jesus is teaching to us about the immense and incomparable value of the king and his kingdom. The point of this parable in a sentence is, oh yes, this king and his kingdom may appear small and hidden, but if you discover this king, if you discover the joys of this kingdom, it is like finding a priceless Pearl. It is like finding buried treasure. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said this about this parable. He said, Christ Jesus is the great pearl. He is the peerless pearl, the pearl of infinite value, who therefore became a ransom for many millions who were in bondage. Christ then is this pearl. He is the treasure. So the question that Jesus is putting before us in this and the question I have for you today is this, have you found the treasure? Are you enjoying the treasure of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Let's see, set these two parables in the context of today and our culture's seemingly insatiable, endless quest for joy, for happiness. We are people who long to be happy. That is why we have something called marketing, Right? If you purchase, here's what marketing does. They say, if you purchase our goods, it will improve your life and it will make you happy. You know, I've never seen a car commercial that says simply this, get a car and it will help get you from point A to point B. That's not what they say, is it? No, they say, get a car, and if you buy this car, then you'll get a date, and you'll look sexier than you really are, and you'll appear powerful, and you'll get to go to extravagant places, and you'll get to just drive way above the speed limit, and nobody will care. In other words, if you buy this car, you will be happy. You will be happy. Do you know the Lord Jesus says that there is something more for us? He says, I am something more for you. Nothing will satisfy you short of him. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure. It was crazy. 
We may know that. We may hear it over and over and over again, and yet Madison Avenue advertisers have, have the unbelievable gift, or maybe it's just tapping into what's already going on in our own hearts, which is to tell us that, <laughs> that, we, should, that we should crave and long for, that we'll get happiness by craving and long, longing for more of what we already have, which has not already done the job of satisfying us. This is what we call foolishness. That when you have tasted and you've experienced all that this world has to offer, and yet you listen to the voices of those who would say, yeah, well, if you just get a little bit more, then it'll actually satisfy you. More stuff, you're hungry, and the world offers us cotton candy, and you eat it, and you eat it, but it will not satisfy you. you It will not satisfy you. Jesus tells us these parables, that man's quest for happiness, man's seemingly endless quest for joy ends with the discovery of this king and his kingdom. A couple years ago, um, in the, the Oscars, which I believe are coming up here again uh, soon, there was, there was one of those years where it was a fairly boring Oscar season, but there was one beautiful transcendent moment uh, in these Oscars, in which a woman named Darling Love, who was 72 years old, and she was featured in a documentary that had won the Academy Award called 20 Steps from Stardom. And the documentary is the subject of all these people who had the looks and the skills and the abilities to become major Hollywood superstars. And yet the stars just never seemed to align for them. They never quite got the big break Darlene Love didn't win the Academy Award during that year a couple years ago. The makers of the, she was only the, the subject of the documentary, or one of many subjects. But the, so the winner came up and is receiving the Academy Award for this documentary featuring these people who didn't quite make it as Hollywood superstars. And then at the very end, though, after this person, is, this person who made the documentary has received the, her, the award, Darling Love steps out on the stage and takes the microphone, and she began to belt out a song. And here she is singing before all the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, all the things that at one time in her life she wanted more than anything else, the wealth, the fame, the people here are more the most famous people in the world. She is not. She never made it. Here's what she began to sing. She said, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I am free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And the whole crowd stood up and gave her this raucous standing ovation, having no earthly idea what the song meant and why she was so happy. See, they were witnessing before their eyes someone who, has, who didn't have all that they had, who didn't quite grasp all the things that they had, but someone who had something that almost no one in the room had. She had the treasure. She had found the treasure. And because of that, being a Hollywood starlet, it didn't matter anymore. Do you have this treasure? Do you enjoy the treasure of the kingdom of God and the king himself? Well, I want to talk to you this morning about what it looks like to enjoy the treasure, to enjoy the treasure. If you're going to enjoy the treasure of the kingdom, it is because of three reasons we see this text gives us. Three reasons or three ways in which you begin to to enjoy the treasure of the kingdom. And the first is this. 
You enjoy the treasure of the kingdom because of a gracious revealing of the treasure. The very first point to note from these parables is one that can be easily missed because the actual point is so obvious. The kingdom is worth a lot, so give your life to it, and we're going to get to that. But there's actually one thing that can be seen in the differences between the two parables. You'll notice this, that the man who finds the treasure wasn't looking for it. He simply stumbles upon it. He may have been burying a dead body. He may have been, I don't know, trying to bury incriminating evidence about himself. He may have been tilling up a field and ran into something he thought was a stump or a rock and began to dig it up. And lo and behold, there was a treasure there. But he was not looking for it. He simply stumbled across it. While the other guy, what's the other guy? The other guy, it says he's a pearl merchant. He's been looking high and low for a pearl of great price. And this mimics some of your stories. That so, for some of you, you simply stumbled upon the king and his kingdom. You were not looking for it. You had no interest in religion. You had no interest in spiritual things. You didn't think deeply. You barely thought past the comforts of your own nose in each given day. Paul, this is who Paul was. Paul was, yes, a religious man, but he was a man who was running from Jesus, running from God and his kingdom in absolutely every way. He was persecuting Christians, and yet God showed up, and Paul seemed to just stumble right into him. This is the story of Charles Spurgeon. When Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old, he became what was, became known as one of the greatest preachers in the church in the, the 19th century, but he was simply walking one day to church because his parents made him go. He didn't want to go. But then a storm came up, and so he couldn't make it to a church, which he was quite happy with. He, so he popped into a local church, a little Methodist church. About 15 people were there, and he was sitting there just hoping to buy the time until he could turn around and go back home and actually get on with his day. But he sat there, and he remembers that service really quite clearly because it was such a strong snowstorm that the preacher, the pastor of this small little Methodist church with about 15 people couldn't even make it to church. The storm was so bad. And so one of the laymen, just a man, got up and began to, to speak. He was going to do the preaching for that day, but he didn't know how. He was ignorant. He was not very eloquent. And so he simply began reading passages of Scripture. He would read a passage of Scripture and then read another passage of Scripture. And eventually, he, the man read from Isaiah 45. And he read in Isaiah 45, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. It was a poor cobbler who read this, and this, this, old, this poor man who was just trying to say something, you know, sound inspirational like the preachers are supposed to sound, started doing this. He started saying, talking about how the, 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 we, all the people of the earth can be saved, the rich man can be saved, and the poor man can be saved, and the little, the children can be saved, and boys can be saved, and girls can be saved, and he was just going through everything he could possibly think of to draw out to try to fill up the time. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like, moved by the Spirit, the man turned and looked at young Charles Spurgeon, and he pointed a finger at him, and he said, young man, you are miserable. You need to look to Jesus. And Spurgeon said in that moment, for some reason, that man pointing to him and reading Isaiah 45 over him, it struck him, and suddenly he stumbled right into the kingdom of God. He looked at Jesus. See, sometimes God shows up, and you weren't even looking you were running from him as fast as you possibly could. Others of you, others of you were looking. You were reading philosophy and you were buying books. You were searching out all things spiritual. You were reading about the various religions of the world. You were trying to make sense of the big questions of life. You were searching and you were searching and you were searching. 
been reading recently a book that I was given about six years ago by Rhonda Rogers when I first got here, and, you know, people give me books, and I don't know what to do with books. I mean, I have so many books, I can't get through them, but I'd heard this book is great. It is this unbelievably beautiful love story of these two people before they're saved, but at some point in the midst of, they, after World War II, they both, he, this man Sheldon Van Auken and his wife go to Oxford, and in the course of their time at Oxford, they decide very deliberately that they should look into this Christianity thing. And so they both go to the bookstore, and they buy over $100 worth of books, stacks of books by C.S. Lewis and Oz Guinness and G.K. Chesterton, and they, they begin to read, and they begin to read the New Testament over and over again, and they start hanging out with Christian friends and discussing with them the things of Christianity, and lo and behold, wouldn't you find that one day they stumbled upon Jesus? They found him, and yet it was still an emotional experience. They found tears coming to their eyes. They were moved because they had found the pearl of great price that they had been searching for. See, there are those who are seeking, and when suddenly they see it, they've been looking, and they've said, no, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, and then they run into Jesus, and they go, that's it. That's the treasure. So some stumble upon it, some search for it, but here's the deal. To all, it is a gift. To all, it is a gift. You see, in all those years of not seeking God or perhaps seeking hard after God, you may find, if you look back at your own story, you may find you look back and you go, actually, I don't know if I was seeking God or not, but here's what I know for sure. He was seeking after me. You see, he is the treasure who comes after you. So the question is, have you found the treasure or has the treasure found you? Well, who cares? The greater question is this. Has the treasure, the pearl, the kingdom been revealed to you? And if it has, count yourself blessed because that is one of the greatest blessings the world can provide. And actually that God provides as he reveals uh, himself to us. So you don't find the treasure on your own. It has to be revealed to you. Whether you're looking at it or you simply stumble upon it, it is God's gift to reveal it to you. Now I begin with that. That it is God's gift to reveal the kingdom to you because I want to counteract what is the most common form of faulty teaching on this parable, which is this. It's a dangerous one. Which th- some people believe that this parable is saying that we are to buy the kingdom of God. This is, this is not a purchase in this parable. It's not saying you can purchase the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, the Bible is crystal clear. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, it says this, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is a gift. Nothing in the stories in these two parables should be construed as teaching that salvation, that having and possessing the kingdom can be purchased by you, except by the idea of Isaiah 55, 1, which says this, Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money, come and buy and eat. If you have no money and someone gives you water and food, that's called a what? A gift. And that's what the kingdom of God is. It is graciously revealed and it is given. But if that's the case, then what is the point of the man and the merchant selling their goods? Why is that emphasized in both of these parables? If it is not a payment or or a purchase, then what is it? Here's how I want to describe it, and this is our second point about the kingdom. If you want to move to enjoy the kingdom of God and the king himself, you must experience a joyous inversion, a flipping. If it's not for payment or purchase, then why do these men sell everything? It's because they have undergone an inversion, a joyous inversion. 
The purpose of your salvation includes making you a person who has your value system corrected so that it is like God's value system. What we see in both of these parables is that they sell all that they have. Everything else that they once valued, everything else that they once built their life upon, all the things that this world holds dear and that they held dear, they said these things are nothing compared to having this item, this treasure, this pearl. Now, one of the questions that people will immediately jump to when they read this is, does living for the kingdom of God mean I have to sell everything? We're going to get to that. But before I answer that question, we have to actually get to something deeper. You see, what's interesting here is people look at this and they wonder immediately, is this prescribing? Is this telling me, oh, as a Christian, if you live in the kingdom, you got to sell everything to live for Jesus. Now, listen, I would wish it was just that easy. That I could just say, hey, if you want to be a Christian, just sell everything. Just sell it all, and we're all just going to be paupers wandering the land. But it's interesting here, it is not a prescribed, and it means that it's not a command, it is a description of what it looks like when you discover the kingdom of God. You see, something more is being communicated here than a command. He is talking about what happens when the kingdom of God is graciously revealed to you, and it's like this. It's like this. See, what happens is nothing less to these two men when they discover these treasures, that nothing, it's nothing less than having your entire value system flipped upside down. What I want you to see here is that what this parable is saying is this, that the normal, the normative response to coming across this king and his kingdom, it looks like this. It looks like selling everything you have to possess him. It looks like giving up all of your time for him. It looks like searching and seeking wholeheartedly to find him and to have him. But this inversion, notice this, is more than that. It's more than simply giving up things. You are also, you're willing to give everything up, but it's not just a willingness. What is it to, how does it describe their attitude about selling all of their possessions in order to have the treasure and the pearl? With joy. With joy. You see, what, the inversion involves this. It's not simply saying, okay, yeah, I'll give up everything to have the kingdom. Okay, yeah, I'll sign on the dotted line for that. No, 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 no. The inversion of, is this, is that I will celebrate that this becomes my greatest longing, this king and his kingdom, and it is my joy to give up anything and everything to enjoy and experience him. I think the best of example uh, of this inversion is found as we read earlier in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through eight. Here's what Paul said about his own testimony, about his own heart. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, real quickly, because he's going to go on to say in just a few other verses to go to my point about how you can't buy the kingdom. He's going to say, I press on to grasp Christ who has already grasped me. You can't pay for Christ to grasp you. But what he's saying is, I release my hands of joy in all of the things so that I may more deeply enjoy and embrace Jesus Christ. And I consider all the other things of this world as rubbish. Ed pointed out earlier, this word rubbish is the Greek word skubala. 
Listen, it's, it comes across as rubbish in the translation because they don't want to, you know, have us all like having to cover our kids' ears. When, but really what it means is trash, it's excrement. It speaks, usually speaks of dead corpses. This word is so crude that it is normally not used in the social settings of the ancient Near East. This is like saying, you know, crap, but even more intense words. It is vulgar and it's offensive. And that's how you were to view all the other things besides Christ Jesus in your life. In fact, it is so offensive that when this was read for the first time in the church at Philippi, there were kids who were going, oh... Paul said a dirty word. Paul said scuba And the parents were grasping their kids' ears, and they're like, don't listen to Paul. Kids were saying, it's a pile of scuba later on. All the things Paul said I once valued, they are what? Scuba. They are scuba. They are trash to me. It is an economic change in his affections. The things, the diamonds of this world... I throw them out. But the inversion doesn't simply mean that we think these old things mean nothing, but it also means it is our joy to give them up. It is our joy to give them up. What is the logic? What is the thinking? See, neither of these men seems to sweat. Seems they have no problem. They're happy to sell all of their possessions. They're happy to sell all of their other prized pearls. They're happy to get rid of them. How can that be? Because the value of what you have and what you receive is so much greater. If someone comes to you and says, listen, I want you to give me $1,000. And if you give me $1,000, you're going to get a million dollars back tomorrow. They might be a Nigerian prince, so watch that. But in this case, it's actually true. Right? When you actually invest, you have no, you're like, I'll give you $1,000 and I get a million dollars back. Well, of course, I'm happy to go to the bank and withdraw all the cash I have. Take it all because there's so much more that I'm purchasing. Jesus is saying that in discovering the kingdom, you find that your affections, the economy of your life gets flipped upside down such that this one thing, the king and his kingdom, is worth losing everything to have it. Mike Ortiz is a pastor in Florida, tells the story of being at a wedding a number of years back, and he's sitting with a young couple, a young couple who hadn't quite reached their 30s. They had two kids, both the husband and the wife worked already, they were, and they were sharing with him about how they were moving towards becoming foster parents. And Ray was like, wow, he was sharing with them how impressed he was by them, but also felt compelled after his experience of watching so many other foster care parents understand, help them understand like the cost. And he said, so you're going to work both, you both work full time, you have a couple kids already. Do you understand like the, the cost of fostering? That you bond with a little baby and you have that baby in your home for 10 months and then you're giving that, then after 10 months, someone walks in your house and they remove that baby from you and they give it to somebody else or maybe perhaps even worse, they take it to the previous home where they might face future abuse. Are you prepared for how that is going to crush you? Mom said, what are you doing? He said, why are you doing this? And she said, because I'm following Jesus Because life in this world is not about protecting myself from the things that might hurt me. He said, she might as well have said, I am selling all because the treasure is worth it. Emotional pain and sorrow, but the treasure is worth it. Why do you sell all? What's your motivation? What's your motivation? What's the motivation that's the point of this parable? Because Jesus in his beauty and worth, he is worth you selling it all. 
Here's the question. How does this enjoyous inversion happen? It happens when the Holy Spirit reveals to you the gleaming, glorious nature of the king and his kingdom as it is presented in the gospel. You see, in the gospel, we find a king who long before you ever have given one thought about selling anything for the sake of his kingdom, we had a king who came to earth and sold all for a treasure so that he might possess something. And what is it that this king, what is the one thing that this king lacked? What was his treasure? You and me. You know what it says? It says he buried it and he sold everything he had with joy. You know, Hebrews talks about this. It talks about someone who sold everything, endured all sorts of suffering for joy. It says this about this man Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the suffering and humiliation and the pain, and he went to the cross with what? Joy. Why? Because he was purchasing a treasure. You, you want to know the worthiness and the beauty of this king and his kingdom, that he is looking at all the suffering and the brokenness of this world, and he's saying, how can I bring my beautiful kingdom to this place, and how can I be restored to these people? It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you everything. Okay, I'll leave heaven, and I'll do it for the joy of the treasure that I'll possess. David Livingston understood this. You know David Livingston, one of the most famous missionaries in history. And people would often come up to him and they would talk about, oh, the great sacrifice that David, that you, the great David Livingston, you have laid down all of these things in order to go to Africa. But here's what he said at a speech at Cambridge. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our gods, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a gloriously destined hereafter? It is emphatically, listen to this, no sacrifice. It is indeed a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let us, let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this sacrifice, we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left the Father's throne on high to give himself for us. Now that, that was a sacrifice. The inversion happened in David Livingston's life because he saw the sacrifice of Christ, the one who had made him, little David, the treasure of a king. And he said, my life is yours. You're so much better. You're so much better. Well, lastly, if you want to enjoy the king and his kingdom, not only must it be gracious to reveal to you, and you, there must be a joyous inversion, but then lastly, you must live into a complete surrender. I come back to the question, do we have to sell it all? In order to enjoy the king and his kingdom, do I have to sell all my possessions and become a beggar to obtain this Christ? to enjoy this Christ, 
Now listen to me, don't be too quick to answer because the answer might be maybe. Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus. He said, I've, I've done it all. I've kept all the laws and the commandments. What must I do? Jesus says, you must go sell all your possessions and follow me. St. Francis of Assisi, he was the son of a wealthy cloth merchant. He had his life laid out before him, wealth, and then he was converted. And it soon, soon, almost as soon as he was converted, he left home. He took all of his clothes off. He pulled out a ragged cloak. He grabbed a rope from a scarecrow in a neighboring field and put it around his waist. And he spent the rest of his life begging from the rich so that he might give to the poor. Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly. Remember how Jesus lived? The foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no home. He has nowhere to put his head. How did John the Baptist live? He lived out in the desert. Hebrews 11, it said the men lived in the mountains and the caves and the holes in the ground. There's ample, ample evidence in the scriptures of those who God says, you want to you enjoy me and enjoy my kingdom? You have to give up everything. All your possessions, you got to go. T.S. Eliot so beautifully described in his poem, Four Quartets, he described Christianity this way. Christianity is a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Is this what it means to sell everything? Here's what I think it means. Some of you might, might be called to sell everything. Let me describe it this way. You've ever seen a field where they're cutting down trees? Like a large, a large, maybe a land where they're clearing for a home, and, but it's, they, they've had certain trees that they're going to keep and certain trees they're going to get away with. And some of the trees have orange spray paint on them. Now, if you're one of those trees and you're looking around the field and you're looking at all of your tree friends that have tr orange spray paint on them, they're no longer there. And you're going, oh, no. Oh, no. They're all gone, and I'm the only one left, and here comes the woodsman. It's not looking so good for me. You see, what, I, what I'm going to get at with that illustration is this, is what God requires of you is that you go through the field, the, the, the woods of your life, and you put orange spray paint on all the trees. And the woodsman may or may not cut them down, but you're saying, if you choose, I'll submit to your way and to your will. If the woodsman shows up and he says, I'm going to take out that tree right there from your life, and you're going to enjoy me more because of it, you're not going to say, you can't do that. You can't take that from me. Everything in your life has the orange spray paint on it. It's all God's. What would that include? Well, it includes your land. It includes your home. It includes, that's what God said to Abraham, right? Hey, leave your family and go. Get out. Get out of her. Earthly possessions. Someday a conviction may call you to sell the things you have in order to give them to the kingdom of heaven. Your career, you might have to leave your career to go serve in Latvia, to spend the later parts of your career there planting churches, earthly reputation. You want to witness to your boss? You might be thinking, I just got them to like me here. And now you're calling me to go witness to these people? And if they reject my witness, it's going to make things really awkward. Spray paint on the tree. My children? Not my children. You see, selling your possessions would be easier. <laughs> it would be easier if that's what it actually meant. Just say, oh, okay, boom, smooth, clear, that's it. 
Just sell your possessions, that's it. But it means more than that. What it means is this, is that you renounce sovereignty of your, of your life. You're saying, I want the king, and I want to enjoy him, and I want to enjoy his rule. Well, you know what you can't do if you want to enjoy the king's rule? Is be in charge yourself. You see, the inversion is saying, he is king, not me. It means I submit to his lordship. He is the boss. I've abdicated the throne. You have to relinquish and divest yourself of all that says, I am in charge. And instead we say, you are in charge, and you can do with my life as you see fit. You see, remember we're talking about kingdoms here. Kingdoms. And the inversion is that you come to see that the kingdom you have lived for is actually a kingdom for your enemy. And the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom is immeasurably beautiful. And so you're saying, I'm willing to lay down all the wealth I have in this kingdom so that I might possess the joy of another kingdom. So if I could give you another name for this inversion, it's called surrender. It's called surrender. Right? That's what you do when a king comes into the kingdom and he says, listen, here's the deal. You can die or you can surrender. And you can come and live in my kingdom and experience my goodness and my joy. The call here is to surrender. So much of the Christian life is your king coming to you and asking you to surrender the trinkets of the old kingdom so that you might have the joys of the new kingdom. See if I can illustrate this. This is a long illustration, so bear with me. We'll be closing. I heard the story on a Christian radio station a couple of years ago about a little girl named Jenny. Perhaps you've heard this. I think it's gotten the rounds. But Jenny was a bright-eyed five-year-old girl. And one day, as she and her mother were in the grocery store, in the checkout line, there was a, a toy set of a pearl necklace hanging there. And she asked her mother if she could buy it. And her mother said, Jenny, th- that necklace is $2.50, and that's a lot of money for you, Jenny. Jenny said, but mommy, I want that necklace. And mommy said, well, here's the deal. I'll buy the necklace for you now. But when we go home for the next couple of weeks, we're going to make a list of chores that you'll have to do. And you'll have to work to pay off this necklace. She said, oh, oh, mommy, that would be wonderful. So, so her mommy bought the necklace for her. And little Jenny adored her necklace. She worked hard for her necklace. She happily did all of the chores day in and day out, running errands for her mother. She loved her necklace. She wore it all the time. She, lo- she wore it when she was playing. She wore it when she went to bed at night. She wore it all at all at school. And oh, she would wear it. She would wear it in the shower. She would wear it when she'd go to the pool. And you know what's going to happen to a cheap $2.50 pearl necklace. She loved it so much that it began to turn her neck a little bit of a shade of green. So she had a loving daddy, and so her daddy was seeing that this, this, this necklace that she had spent so much of her time and her energy and her money on to purchase, that this wasn't really good for her. He wanted something better for her. And so he said, came to her, and he would read to her every night. And so one night when he finished his story, he said to her, Jenny, Jenny, do you love me? She said, yes, daddy, you know that I love you. And he said, then give me the pearl necklace. She said, oh, daddy, not my pearls. You can have Rosie, my favorite doll. Remember her? You gave her to me last year for my birthday. You could even have the tea set that comes with her, but not my pearls. Is that okay, Daddy? He said, okay, sweetie. He gave her a kiss goodnight, and he walked out. A week later, same routine. He was reading her a bedtime story again, and after he got done, he said, Jenny, do you love me? She said, yes, Daddy, you know that I love you. He said, then will you give me your pearls? And she said, oh, Daddy, not my pearls. But you can have ribbons, my toy horse. Do you remember her? She, she was my favorite. Her hair is so soft. And you can play with it and you can braid it. Because what father wouldn't love to braid a toy horse's hair? You can have ribbons if you want her, daddy. And he said, no, that's okay. And he gave her a kiss goodnight and left the room. 
Several days later, when Jenny's father came in to read her a story and tuck her in, she was sitting on her bed, and her lower lip was trembling. She held out in her hand and said, Here, Daddy. (laughs) Her beloved pearl necklace was inside, and she let it slip into her father's hand. With one hand, her father held the plastic beads, and with another, he slipped out of his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet box, and he handed it to her, and inside the box were real, genuine pearls. He had had them all the time. He was waiting for Jenny to give up the small trifles for the real jewelry. So why should you sell everything? Why should you spray the orange spray paint on everything in your life? Because it's crazy not to. Because what you get in return is so much better Because you get far more than you invest. Ultimately, you give up nothing. You get everything because you gain the whole world. You know, there's a famous phrase from the 20th century that goes something like that. From a man named Jim Elliott who gave up everything at 28 years old. He had children. He had a spouse. He had a college education. He was strong and he was good looking. And he flew down to reach the Alca Indians in Ecuador and they took his life. But that man said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen, does your heart yearn for something more? Let me give you a secret. It yearns for the king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what am I withholding from you? What am I clinging to that's actually stealing my joy in you? Lord, my guess is it's my longing to appear competent. And so I'll skip time with you in order to look better. My guess is it's my longing to not be afraid of my savings. Of losing them. Oh, gracious God, I pray that I would spray some more spray paint on some stuff. The Lord, I'd give these things over to you. Lord, some of us, we, we, we haven't given up the, the control of our life. We're dictating the trees that you can take. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would come and convince us and show us Jesus, the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane looked at the Father and said, you can have it all. Not my will, but yours be done. Because there is a possession, there is a treasure that I long to have that you would convince us of the beauty and the worthiness of Jesus, that you would show us yourself, God, so that the things of this world would go strangely dim, so they would seem small and trite, give us the eyes to see. Spirit, that's going to have to be your work. (laughs) Whether we bump into it or we're searching for it, but you're going to have to reveal it to us. So would you do that on behalf of every person in this room? Do it on behalf of my own heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.